I've been thinking this past week. I've had a number of perplexing questions come my way. Why do people disappoint us so easily? Why does our culture overdose on sex and drugs? Why do we stand in front of a closet full of clothing and think, I have nothing to wear today? Why do kids open the refrigerator with lots of food in it and say, Mom, there's nothing to eat in this house? Why am I upset when parents or marriages fail? Why do I fret so much about tomorrow? Why do trials paralyze us more than they should? Why does the world seem so unjust? Why do people have to die? Most of the time, these questions don't perplex me. For I'm caught up in the pell-mell of just living a life. But if I stop and think for a moment, these questions not my very soul. As I pondered some of these questions even this past week, I was thinking of speaking today because Pastor Steve came to me about two weeks ago and said, uh, hey, Larry, I'm going to be away on the 9th. I'm going to be away before that at a conference, so could you speak on the 9th? And could you take my whole series making life count and kind of tie the whole thing together, you know, kind of put the bow on the box and bring everything home. And I'm saying, hey, Pastor Steve, you're the senior pastor. Uh, you know, I'm just the mission guy. What is this all about? But all kidding aside, do, where do you find purpose, goal in life? How do we ensure that our life really does count, that we are making a difference in the world? Paul gives an interesting answer to this question. I think if we were to ask him, we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Philippians. And so I invite you to open your Bibles or turn your device to Philippians 1. As we come to this text, Paul has founded the church in Philippi. Chapter 1, verse 7 and verse 17 indicate that Paul is now in chains. He's probably in Rome before a court in a few days, few hours, few weeks. We don't know how long. We do know that it's a capital offense that he's accused of. It could cost him his life. And I wonder if Paul was thinking at this moment, how did this happen to me? Jesus, I thought you came to set the captives free, to proclaim justice and mercy. Now here I am in jail. How has this happened to me? Yet Paul takes a very different tack than I think I would take. Notice his words in our text this morning. Chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Twelve very powerful words. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you listen to our pop culture today, we might hear them say, For me to live is to accumulate. For me to live is to live life with gusto. For me to live is to be successful. For me to live is to climb the corporate ladder or the social ladder. Or in a more prosaic tone, we might say, for me to live is to play golf, to go sailing, to garden, to travel, to shop till I drop, to get my kids in the best school possible. 
to watch the football games today, unless you're a Jets fan. <laughs> For me to live is Christ, Paul says. Twelve words of declaration. Maybe it's the reason why this verse is so haunting to us, how it's so often repeated in Christian circles. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is not addressing a problem here in the church at Philippi. There's not a heresy going on. That he's not teaching young pastors about how to be a pastor. He's not dealing with great theological truth necessarily, but he is very personal in his, in his statement here. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Notice that personal pronoun, for me to live. Paul probably harkens back to that road to the, on road to Damascus as he's traveling along that road and it comes to a point where this voice from heaven speaks to him. And through the course of the dialogue, he has to determine, is this really the risen Messiah? Is this really Jesus? Should I accept the claims of Christ, that he is the Son of God? And Paul makes a very strong declaration here. Today we had the privilege of witnessing the dedication of my granddaughter. We're going to do 10 other dedications in the next service. And as each of the parents come forward, we ask them a couple questions. We're going to give them instructions as a church. We're going to pray for them as a church. We're going to give them a, a document that says on this day, November 9, 2014, you dedicated your child to the Lord, but that dedication will not save that little child. That little child needs to, of his own volition, make his own confession of faith when he gets to what sometimes we call the age of accountability. You don't become a Christian because of your DNA. You're not assimilated into it. It's not because your parents were Christians that you become a Christian. It's not because you're an American. It's that individual declaration, for me to live is Christ. C.S. Lewis, the English author, the last century, puts it well when he says this concerning the obligation that all of us have when we look at the claims of Christ. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if it is true of infinite importance, the only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. My mother, before she died, went through the home that I grew up in. In the attic, she found a Bible, my old Bible. The inside of that Bible is inscribed these words. I, Lawrence Fullerton, accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior on September 18, 1958. Now, all of you are probably thinking back, boy, that guy's really old. <laughs> but Christianity is intensely personal. And here Paul gives his declaration, for me to live is Christ. His second declaration, and to die is gain. Follow along as Paul finishes his thought, verse 22. And if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. To desire, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is necessary for you that I remain in the body. I'm going to stop the reading right there. When I was new in the ministry, 
my former church, the senior pastor asked me to go visit a person in the church who had received a terminal diagnosis. Her name was Vivian Olenberg. It's my first time ever going to the hospital to visit someone like this, and I was really nervous. And so as I was driving over there, I was thinking all the pastoral uh, counseling courses I'd had at seminary, and I was trying to think of all the things I had learned at one point. And then as I sat in the parking lot, I took out my Bible and tried to find Bible verses I would use to, to comfort this woman. I stepped into a room. Surprisingly, she was very upbeat, and Vivian said to me, oh, hi, Larry. She knew my name. I was surprised at that. We chatted for a moment, and then soon a very brusque uh, Physician doctor came into the room in a big raft of papers with him, and I realized he was going to talk to her about her medical condition. So I wanted to give them time alone, so I stepped out into the hallway, and now I was really nervous because I realized the hammer was going to come down. She was going to get some very bad news. The doctor, after a few moments, brushed by me, never acknowledged, just left. So I walked into the room. Vivian was obviously upset. So I waited for a moment and I said, Vivian, did the doctor give you some bad news? Terrible, she said. Long, long pause. Well, what did the doctor say, Vivian? With tears in her eyes, she's never looking up, she said, ah, he told me I'm going to recover. Now, completely unplussed by that response, I blurted out, oh, Vivian, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I laugh at my myself at that reaction now. For as a 30-year-old, I, I just couldn't comprehend that a person who had received the notification that she was going to recover from an illness would actually be devastated, disappointed. How can Paul say, to die is gain? Ron Ferguson was on the staff here at BlackRock, and I were talking about this very passage on our staff retreat just a few days ago. And he it said an interesting thing. He said, you know, eternity isn't talked about very much in the Christian circle anymore. It just seems to me it's kind of pie in the sky, and so we never talk about eternity other than at funerals. Introduced me to a book, Forever, Why You Can't Live Without It. This is a great book. You need to read this. Uh, several of you would benefit from reading this. We have some of them available in the Welcome Center. But Dr. Tripp is a professor at a seminary in Dallas, Texas. And the basic thesis of the book is very simple, and that is that we as modern Christians, as 20th century Christians, have developed... Uh, what he calls eternity amnesia. Because we don't talk about eternity, it's something that we used to know, but somehow we've forgotten. And so when Vivian says to me that I've received bad news, I'm going to recover, I'm astounded. You know, we started with a series of questions. Why is life so difficult? Why do people have to die? Professor Tripp reminds us that within our very being, I am hardwired for eternity. 
that God, when he made us, when he made mankind, man and woman, we were made not to die. We were made not to feel pain. And it's only a result of sin in the world and sin in our lives that we die and pain is part and parcel of our lives. Cancer invades a body. Or we hear of what's going on in a person who has AIDS. Or we watch the Ebola epidemic taking place in Africa. And we say, that isn't right. And that's the correct response. It isn't right. Because it wasn't meant to be. So we groan when we hear those words. Bad news makes us groan. Paul says, of all creation groans. Romans 8.18. I consider our present suffering is not worthy compared with the glory that we, it is to be, will be revealed to us. The creation awaits an eager expectation for the sons of God to be re revealed. Down to 22. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. Not only creation... But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption as sons and redemption of our bodies. We have a bad case of eternity amnesia. And it has at least eight ramifications. First, it makes us live unrealistic lives because of unrealistic expectations. We expect from other people to be able to do for us what only God can do. We want to live in the here and now. We want our answers immediately. Second, we focus too much on ourselves. This eternity amnesia causes us to focus on the problems as if we were the center of the universe. We forget that eternity awaits. Thirdly, we ask too much of people. Unwittingly, we ask of people that they provide the paradise that only God will give in eternity. And so when these people, our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, cannot fulfill those expectations of our paradise, we become depressed or discouraged. For we are controlled by fear. Eternity amnesia causes us to live a life as if our life is so short and it's passing us by and therefore I need to grab everything I possibly can. We live in this constant fear that I'm going to miss the moment, never to be repeated. It's my one shot. Fifth, I question the goodness of God. Eternally amnesia causes me to start to question, is God really good? Is he really omnipotent? If he was good, and he really was omnipotent, all-powerful, then right now, he ought to solve my problem. Six, I therefore, I live a discouraged and thankless life. Seven, I lack motivation and hope. I forget that I'm part of God's story. I'm only on in the prologue, not the postlude. And finally, eternity amnesia causes me to believe that our present life has no consequences. 
My belief in eternity allows me to say that the decisions I make today will have eternal significance. But I forget that because I'm a product of eternity amnesia. Paul is not that way. And therefore he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I'm compelled in conclusion to ask you just two quick questions. First of all, have you made that decision to become a Christ follower? Can you echo in your heart, for me to live, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Maybe you've been to church hundreds of times. And maybe this is your first time. Maybe there are things in your past that you think God could never forgive you. I remind you of Paul. Paul was a Jewish jihadist at this point on the road to Damascus. He is seeking to wipe out Christianity and God forgives him of that. God can change any life. Let me give you an illustration here from football. If you don't like football, just tune out for about two minutes and come back here in about uh, 90 seconds or so. I'm not a Florida State football fan, but Florida State, the Seminoles, have a great opening introduction, probably the most compelling opening introduction in all of college football. It starts with a huge crowd, and then just before the two teams come in, a Seminole Indian Enters, the, enters into the stadium and he's on a war pony and he makes, he trans, uh, goes around the stadium to the, and the crowd becomes more and more enthusiastic and finally he pauses the goalposts and he raises his lance, his war lance and the horse starts to gallop to the 50-yard line and at that precise moment the horse will rear up and King uh, Indian Chief Oscola will ram that spear into the center of the emblem of Florida State, saying, this is Florida State territory. And the other team, you better be aware of that. This belongs to Florida State. And that's what your declaration is. It's your declaration that you belong to Jesus, that Jesus has a hold of your life. And it says to all around you, this is God territory. My life is God territory. Have you made that decision yet this morning? For those of us who are Christ followers, are we really ready and looking forward to eternity? Again, C.S. Lewis reminds us, if I find in myself a desire that no experience on this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you remember? Do you remember that eternity awaits you, that this life is not the end? The Apostle John records the final words to Jesus, to his church. The end of the book we call Revelation. John pens these words given to him by Jesus. 
All right, Jesus. Sent by angels to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. This may be your moment, your opportunity to pray in your own heart. I accept that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that I need a Savior to cover my shortcomings. And that Savior is Jesus. It's so simple, but it's so profound and it's so necessary. That's the invitation this morning. If God is moving in your heart, I'd love to pray with you. You can pray it in your own heart. You don't have to come forward, but we're going to have a prayer team down here. We'd love to pray with you about that. God is good. And he says, through Jesus, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we ask that some this morning, maybe many, with their own hearts would echo the words, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. I commit my life to you. I place the stake in the ground. I say that I am God territory. And so, Father, I pray that if you're speaking to the hearts of people in this church, that they would, they would pray that silently this very moment. For those of us who are Christ followers, may we look forward to heaven. May we look forward to eternity. And help us to remember, Father, that all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And help us all to be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And God's people said, Amen. have a great week.